It's always such a blessing to be able to worship the God of heaven and to come together this evening and listen to his word read and pray prayer before his throne and uh, sing a couple of beautiful songs. It's encouraging and uplifting, and I thank you for joining in in this worship assembly, especially if you're visiting with us. We're really glad that you're here to do that. May each song I have to sing be to you a lovely thing in your time. That's my prayer every day as I think about pleasing God in all that I say and do and every expression of honor that I try to give him. And I know that's your goal as well. That life is about glorifying the God of heaven, pleasing him, and our lives themselves should be lovely things in his sight. So thank you for your efforts to do that and to glorify the God of heaven. I'd like you to turn your Bibles this evening, if you will, to the book of Amos. And you might have noticed that the invitation song was prepare to meet your God, quite a different tone than the song we just sang. And there's a reason for that, and that's because that is, in fact, the biblical phrase that we're basing our lesson on tonight. It's a phrase that was spoken by Amos to Israel in Amos chapter 4 and verse 12. Prepare to meet your God. The name Amos literally means burden bearer, burden bearer. Amos had a burden to bear that God gave him to take to the northern kingdom of Israel. The message that he was sent to deliver was, we would have said when I was a young man, really heavy man. (laughs) It was a heavy, heavy message. But Amos carried it out admirably carried it to Israel, and proclaimed it boldly. Amos was a simple country boy. He was a shepherd, a dresser of sycamore fig trees from the small town of Tekoa in the hill country of southern Judah. I happen to get a picture of Amos, which you have on your screen, uh, there in the hill country of Judah with a sycamore fig tree in the background as he's writing a book of prophecy, obviously. Interestingly, There was no camera back in that day and time, but I asked AI to generate a picture for me of him, and this is what they gave me. (laughs) So uh, it's, uh, you're having an AI lesson tonight, I suppose. Amos is an amazing man. The message that he took, as I said, was, was a burden. When he goes up to Israel in Amos chapter 7, He is told that his words to the people of Israel in the northern kingdom were unbearable. He had to carry them up there, but they weren't going to take it. He was despised by the leadership of the northern kingdom. He was less well received than a Yankee would have been in Montgomery during the days of the Confederacy. He was not liked. Yet, he forthrightly proclaims this message. A message, may I say to you, that was not just negative, that was not just condemning Israel for its transgressions. It was not even a call to repentance. When when Amos said, prepare to meet your God, he was not saying, you need to get your life right because God's coming, you need to repent. That wasn't it. Now, that's the message of the song we're going to sing. We'll get there after a while. But that was not Amos's message. Amos's message was, prepare to meet your God because he is coming to destroy you. And you have no option 
but to be destroyed, just get ready for it. You have had warning after warning after warning, call after call after call to repentance. You've ignored them all. God's coming in judgment. That is the message of Amos. Because in the days of Amos, the people of Judah were at ease. And the people of Israel in the northern kingdom trusted in Mount Samaria. They thought that everything was great, their fortress was strong, none could assail it. The time in which they lived, as is mentioned in Amos chapter 1 and verse 1, Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam the second was the son of Joash, was king of Israel. This was a time, 760 to 750 BC, is when those reigns overlapped. It's a time period of economic and national prosperity and security in both Judah and Israel. Assyria, which would, within a generation, take the northern kingdom of Israel captive and lay the land waste, Assyria that would do that in about 40 years from the time that Amos prophesies was a sleeping giant and had not yet risen to power in the region. So Israel and Judah both thought, hey, we've got it made in the shade with a glass of lemonade. Everything is just fine with us. And that was the attitude. At ease in Zion and trusting in Mount Samaria. And yet, the conditions in which they were living, the prosperity they enjoyed, the security of their nation, had put and put in their minds that they deserved the luxury of life that they were enjoying. That the pagan society that surrounded them was something that was fine to engage. And that moral corruption could be practiced without consequence. These conditions are the conditions to which Amos spoke. To the Lord, these people were no more palatable than the lukewarm waters of the Laodiceans centuries later. God was going to spew them out of his mouth. He was sick. No, that language isn't used in the book of Amos. But this language is. In Amos chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. The Lord said to me, the end has come. The end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. You ever go in your kitchen in the morning maybe and you're trying to make some breakfast and you notice a smell. Okay, there's a bit of a smell in the kitchen. And you think, well, maybe it's this milk I'm about to pour in my cereal. You sniff that? No, it's not that. Well, maybe it's coming from the garbage can. Look in the garbage can. No, it doesn't seem to be that. And then you sniff around a little bit, and your nose becomes nose blind, and you, you don't notice it anymore. And you say, well, it must not be anything. And then later that evening, you go back in the kitchen again, and there is something going on in this kitchen. I really can't, you know, there's the gnats that have come from Walmart all around, and something's, something's going. You check your stack of bananas. Are those things going rotten? Is that what it is? No, that's not what it is. And then the next morning you get up, and there is something happening in the kitchen. Okay, there's something rotten in Denmark, but it's in my kitchen. And, and so you go in there and you start looking around, and there's this bowl of fruit on the counter. And you get to looking at it, and right in the middle of it, not only one thing, but two things, and you get to looking at it, and virtually every piece of fruit in the bowl is rotting. And you say, this 
is going out. And God says to Amos, they're a basket of rotten fruit, and they're going out. That's the message of Amos. And I'll just tell you, it's a hard message. I cannot imagine. Amos is widely regarded by Bible scholars and those who studied his work as one of the most courageous proclaimers of the truth of God possibly who ever lived. His message was certainly the least popular message that anybody ever received from God. And that is that you're condemned, that destruction is coming, and there is no chance that it's not going to happen. But the message of Amos, as harsh as it was, is so needed for us today. We need to examine, are we in the same situation, number one? And if we're not in the same, same situation, what can we do to keep from getting in that situation? Individually, collectively, and I might say as a nation as well. I want to explore with you the situation that is described in Amos. Just quickly, it's a long book. We're not going to look at nearly everything. But just to get this idea of the judgment that was coming upon Judah and particularly Israel and why. First of all, when we talk about God judging his people, we often get this idea, and I, I talked about this really in a lesson uh, just a week or so ago when we, we think about self-justification. Well, we're not as bad as everybody else, so therefore we're kind of okay. And, and, and probably both Israel and Judah were thinking that. And the first thing God says in, in this book is that, you know what? I'm going to judge all of the nations that are around you. You start reading in the book of Amos in, in chapter uh, 1 and verse 3. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. So Damascus, the capital of Syria, is going to be judged. In chapter 1 and verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Gaza was doing things at one of the main cities of the, the um, Philistines. I almost said the Philippines, but it was the Philistines. They're going down. They're going to be punished as well. They're, they're transgressing. A fire is going to come upon the wall of Gaza, it says. I'll cut in ha in the, off the inhabitant from Ashdod. So the, the, the lands, the cities of the Philistines were going to be judged. In verse uh, 9, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. In verse 11, the text says, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And then in verse 13, for the transgressions of my people Ammon and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Their king's going into captivity, by the way. He's going to kindle a fire that's going to devour the land and the palaces. And then he goes on to Moab in chapter 2. For three transgressions and for four, I will not take away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. And so all of these nations and city-states around Israel and Judah had committed all sorts of crimes, all sorts of sins, Every time God introduces their condemnation, he says for three transgressions and for four, it's not that they've done one thing, two things, three things. They've done all kinds of things. And I'm not ignoring it. And they're going to be punished. So lest anybody in Judah and Israel would say, 
well, these guys are so bad, God's going to concentrate on them. He's going to overlook us. God says, yeah, I'm going to get every one of them. Every last one. And if you looked at this on a map, I didn't bring the map, but it's just a circle around Israel and Judah. They're all going down. And then God is going to judge Judah itself, is the message in the first part of chapter 2. Verse 4, for three, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because they despise the law of the Lord. They've not kept his commandments. Notice the sins of Judah were much different than the sins of these other nations. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. I will send fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. And all of that came true. Amos is prophesying, as we've already said, 760 to 750 B.C. And sure enough, in 586 B.C., well over 100 years later, closer to 200 years later, the Babylonians invade, Jerusalem is laid waste. Jeremiah records it, that they in fact burned the place with fire and tore down the temple. And Jeremiah was there to watch it happen, just exactly as Amos had prophesied. Why did God destroy them? Well, they listened to lies. Lies that led them astray, verse 4 had said. Lies which their fathers followed. I might suggest to you, just in passing, that following the traditions of your fathers for your religious practices and your lifestyle in general is not a great idea unless you examine them in light of Scripture in light of the oracles of God. I'm sure there were lots of people in Judah that were saying, well, we're practicing our father's religion, what they've done, you know, all these hundreds of years since the time of Moses, and so we're okay because we're doing... What they were practicing was a bunch of lies, a pack of lies that had been handed down by their fathers as the truth of God, which were in fact perversions as we talked about this morning, of the truth of God's word. They had accepted, if you will, denominationalism of Judaism and compromise of Judaism with the idolatrous nations around. And this was the tradition that they had accepted rather than examining and obeying the law of God. So Judah's going down and Judah's punishment would be complete. But then there's Israel. In chapter, six, in chapter 2 and verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. So to all of them, nobody's getting off. Everybody's getting punished. I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. We don't care about humanity. We care about materialism. We don't care about how well somebody's doing, how much this hurts you. We want what we want for us. And if we have to sell people to get what we want, that's what we're going to do. That was one of their attitudes. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. They pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl gross immorality being justified among people who are supposed to be the people of God to defile my holy name 
They lie down in every, uh, by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. They're doing all sorts of things that God is not pleased with. Judgment on Israel is certain. Bribery and oppressing the poor and sexual immorality and idolatry, defiling God's holy name, supposedly God's people, but engaging in every worldly perversion that one might think of. Let me tell you what, man must either love God's law and hate and abhor lies, or he will despise God's law and cleave to the lies. God is weighed down by the people of Israel. He talks about all he'd done for them in verses 9 and 10, 11. He says in verse 11, I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. If you just studied about Samson in our classes, you know that was a (laughs) no-no. You gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. I don't know if we've ever thought about God this way much, but God has a heart and God has feelings. And God is weighed down by the sins of these who were supposed to be his people. He is burdened by it. Now, not in the sense that, oh, it's something so heavy I can't lift it or it's going to destroy me. But he is feeling that. God feels, God feels it when you sin. God feels it when you turn your back on him especially Christians for whom God has done ever so much, more than he ever did for Israel in ancient times. God speaks to them about their deliverance from Egypt and other great victories that he'd had them win over the ages against the Amorites and others. And yet, what has he done for us? He sent his only begotten son, that's what, who died on a cross for the sins that we, when we turn away from him, keep on committing. Hebrew writer will say that we crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And he will warn us, much as Amos warned Israel, that if we do that, there just isn't another sacrifice for sin. In the text... God is weighed down as a cart full of sheaves. He's deeply grieved by the sinfulness of humankind. This was so early on. Genesis chapter 6, in the days of Noah, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that the intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the text says in Genesis 6 and verse 6, that the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. 
In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, Paul echoes the same sentiment when he pleads with the Ephesians. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I don't know what motivations we have for striving to live holy lives and resist temptation and not give ourselves over to sin. And if we do, turn away from it quickly and ask for God's mercy and grace. I don't know what all motivates you in your personal spiritual walk concerning those things. But I can tell you one thing that motivates me and has for many, many years. And it is this. When I think about what Jesus did for me on the cross and how much God loves me and all that He's done for me, much more than He ever did for the Israelites. When I think about the temptations that I have to sin and violate His will unrepentantly, the question in my mind is this. How how can I break the heart of God? How can I do that? After all he's done for me. That never crossed the mind of the children of Israel that Amos is talking to. They had weighed God down. And they'd left Him no recourse but the judgment that was coming. It's a judgment that none will escape. It didn't matter how fast you ran, how well you shot the bow, how strong and mighty you were, he'll say in verses 14 through 16, none of that matter. Nobody was going to escape. Nobody was going to get out of it. God was coming in judgment. God is going to judge the world. Surely we realize. God will judge the world, the just and the unjust, His people as well as those who are aliens to His covenants. We are, as they were in Amos' time, living in a wicked world, in deploring it, my friends, in deploring the world that's around us, we must not become like it. Psalm 96 and verse 13, the psalmist says that he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. And his judgment, as ever, really begins with his people. We want to see it, as we talked a little bit last week. Uh, like, well, God's looking at all the really, really bad people out there, and then we're going to be graded on a curve as he comes toward us. <laughs> no. We're going to be graded by his standard to begin with. Here's the way Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. He says, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where would the ungodly and sinner appear? In Hebrews 10 and verse 30, we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Will judge his people. Well, what are the main problems then that have upset God so, that have burdened him so, that have caused him to come to this grievous decision to do what he's about to do to the nation of Israel. The problem of prosperity and paganism. 
was rife in the land of Israel in the day. God was going to punish the proud prosperity and paganism of the whole family of Israel. When you turn to chapter 3, uh, there is a sermon of warning. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of that. We'll just look at the end of that, at the, toward the end of the chapter. But in verse 14, On the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Now, what's, most all of you know what, what, the, what the altar of Bethel signifies. It was introduced by Jeroboam, whose you know, namesake was on the throne of Israel at this time. Calf worship. Jeroboam had erected a calf, one at Dan and one at Bethel, and told the people, you can worship Jehovah here, and perverted the services of the Lord and said, this will be fine, this will be okay. And they'd been doing that for some time now, by the time Amos rolls around. The picture that you're seeing on the screen is one I've shared before. Some of you may remember this. Uh, that is the high place of Dan. Its twin sister was in Bethel. We don't know where that was, but this still exists. The very place where the altar at Dan stood in the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. You'll notice that there's not really an altar there. Different cults and pagan religions and others have used this site to sacrifice for a long, long time. Someone has set up a, a metal frame there to illustrate where the altar was when it was there. It's all gone. It's been gone for a long time. God said he destroyed these altars. That was the promise, and that's what he did. It was all because of the prosperity and the paganism. And when you come to the end of chapter 3, then you just flow into what is said in chapter 4. And let me read to you a, a few verses here in chapter 4. Um, which we call a sermon to the cows of Bashan. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. You don't think of cows, you know, listening to sermons very well. Uh, I've been out in cow fields a couple of times. I know some of you spend a lot of time out in cow fields. They don't really seem to listen to you when you talk once in a while. It seems like they might be, but no, they really don't. Amos is preaching to the cows of Bashan, but they're not cows. They're on the mountain of Samaria and they oppress the poor and they crush the needy and they say to their husbands, bring us wine to drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, but that, behold, the days are coming, shall come upon you when he, he will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. You will go through a broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress and Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the freewill offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God, you cows of Bashan. Bashan is a fertile plain in the northeast of the land of Israel in what is also sometimes called Gilead. Cows graze there even today. And they represent the luxury 
and the abundance and the life of ease that the women of Israel were enjoying. They didn't care again about the poor people. They cared about their own pleasure, their own comfort. They didn't care to worship God as God had commanded. Their religion was a religion of convenience. They, they went to church, all right, all right. Yeah, they went to church their way. They, they'd go to Bethel or Dan and sacrifice that way or some other foreign god and claim they were still pleasing Jehovah. They did it their way. And that's what God is saying. If you read through this text, the things that are mentioned here by name, if, I, if there were, this were a Bible class, I, I'd ask you, what is wrong with the places where the sacrifices were offered? What, what God said, go ahead and offer in these places, you know. Gilgal, you go ahead and offer in Bethel. You just go ahead and do that. And then, what's wrong with offering Thanksgiving sacrifices with leaven? What's wrong with proclaiming and announcing your free will offerings? As you read through this, if you're not familiar with the laws of God in the Old Testament, you say, well, that sounds like they're, they're really religious. A lot of people are not familiar with God's laws for us today, and they think about things people are doing today, and they think, wow, that's really religious. That's got to glorify God. God's got to be happy with that. And it's not found in the oracles of God anywhere what's going on. And sometimes the oracles of God say to do the opposite of what people are actually doing then as now. What's wrong with those things according to the Old Testament law? God said you're to offer your sacrifices in the place. Not wherever you want. Not on every high hill. And under every green tree as they were doing. The place where I say you're to offer your sacrifices. What's wrong with offering the Thanksgiving sacrifices with leaven? It was strictly forbidden. You shall not offer the Thanksgiving sacrifices with leaven. Leaven was not to go along with the grain offerings. We studied this last quarter, quarter before last. No, last quarter. Not, not to go along. That was specifically stated in the law of God. They were ignoring it. Why? Well, we baked all of this bread. Of course, our bread's got leaven in it. God wants a sacrifice without any leaven. Man, it's a chore to bake a whole bunch more bread. Let's just throw this on the sacrifice. You know, it's got leaven in it already. That's fine. It's so convenient. What's wrong with proclaiming and announcing your free will offerings? You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 3, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites do. That's what's wrong. They're just proclaiming their own goodness to show it to men. We can learn a lot from Israel about what unacceptable worship is to God. If we go forward a little bit, again, this theme of you're living in luxury, you've, you've compromised your religion, and you care less about others. Those three concepts, this problem of prosperity and paganism, found throughout the book. And he says again, as I mentioned earlier in chapter 6 and verse 1, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion, who trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. And, and God challenges them. Go over to 
lot of other places. You know, just look at this place and that place. He names several places. He says, are, are you greater, so much greater than all these other places you think you can just get away with anything? You think you're so secure and you don't have to worry about God's judgment or anything ha- bad happening to you? I'm paraphrasing all that, but that's kind of the point. They were smug in their prosperity and that deceived them. They thought they were different from their neighboring cities, from the people around them, but they weren't. They enjoyed lives of luxury and ease. If you pick up in chapter 6 and verse 4, there he says, They lie on beds of ivory and stretch out on your couches, and they eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, and they sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David and drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Living in the lap of luxury, enjoying all of the privileges of the lifestyle and the blessings that God had lavished upon them. Singing the songs, eating the food, enjoying the whatever, recreation of their society. And that's what life was. May I say to you, it's fine to enjoy God's blessings. He wants you to enjoy them. He wants you to thank Him for them. But that is not what life is all about. And if that's what your life is all about, and you can be sitting here in this room tonight and that still be what your life is all about, just like Israel, The message of Amos was hard. It's hard to preach about it. It's hard to hear it. It's hard because it hits a little close, I think. Jesus said, beware of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Paul, in writing to Timothy, makes it clear to him that godliness with contentment is great gain. We, we didn't bring anything into this world. We're not going to carry anything out, he says in 1 Timothy 6 and verses 6 and 7. Having food and clothing, we should be content, are we? And then he goes on and talks about how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it is. And a lot of people have strayed from the faith in their greediness for it and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Certainly that was true of ancient Israel. And he commands the rich in verse 17 not to be haughty but to, nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Did you hear that? God, whatever you have, God has given you that to, to enjoy it for sure. There's not a sin in enjoying your blessings. But there is a sin in making that your whole life and entrusting in those things to the exclusion of God and to the lack of concern for those who have so much less than you do. And so Paul will go on to say concerning the wealthy, let them do good. Let them be rich in good works, ready to give, 
and willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. In the text of Amos, the Lord will say in verse 8 of chapter 6, He's sworn by Himself. He's sworn by Himself. The Lord of hosts had said then, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Many good Bible students in this room know what it means when God swears by himself. It means you can count on it. Again, there's no option in the book of Amos really for repentance. There's no, okay, if you just straighten up one more time, I'll give you, you know, more years, cut you some slack, whatever. There's none of that in this book. God says, I've sworn by myself. You're going down. Really sobering, isn't it? That God's people could so neglect him, so smugly and proudly, in self-sufficiency, all the while thinking they're okay, God's with them, that they could have all of that attitude and be condemned with no hope. And yet, because God is God, somehow, for the future of Israel, whom he promises to take away, there is hope. A hope that extends even to those in this room tonight, to all of us. When we get to the end of the book of Amos, so full of condemnation and the wrath of God. Verse 10 of chapter 9, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. I mean, again, it's just over and over again. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. They're they're all going down. But the next line, the next verse, verse 11 is, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as uh, in the days of old. Greg Chandler, when he was here, was talking about God delights in destruction and recreation. And you see it really many, many times in Scripture. When something becomes worthless, he'll take it down and destroy it. But then, in mythology, we'd call it the phoenix rising from the ashes. But it's God bringing things back to life that were holy holy, gone and destroyed. And so it was that Israel, in a spiritual sense, would come back. The days are coming, says the Lord in verse 13, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Those days are now in the kingdom. We are experiencing that. We are in it. Where even as we sow the seed of the kingdom, we turn around and we're reaping the fruit and we're having the blessings and people are coming to the Lord and enjoying the blessed blessings in His kingdom as Christ sets on the throne of this beautiful kingdom. And that's what Amos is promising for a time to come. He says, I will bring back the captives of my people, verse 14, Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant the vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall make gardens and eat fruit from them. All of that 
In verse 12, he had said, they're going to possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. May I say to you that I know for a fact that that is talking about the blessings of the Messiah's kingdom, that even the Gentiles, us, are privileged to enjoy. And I know, for, I know it for a fact because about 800 years after this, in Jerusalem there was a conference. And the apostles and the elders and Paul and Barnabas were talking about how it could be that Gentiles would be accepted as part of the kingdom of God. And James, one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, stands up and says, here's why it's so. And he quotes this passage from Amos. That's why it's so. Because the oracles of God proclaimed it. The plowman shall overtake the reaper. I want to thank you for your good attention tonight. I want to encourage you as we are winding up. Don't lose attention right now. Prepare to meet your God. Fortunately, in the world in which we live, we believe that when there's life, there's hope. That even one who's fallen far from the Lord, if he has life, he has opportunity to repent. In fact, for many people, that's the only reason God lets them keep living. The Bible tells us his long-suffering is bringing them to repentance. In the book of Amos, we're told that we're going to meet God. He is described as the one who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns the shadow of death into mourning, who brings the phoenix from the ashes, who brings destruction to glory. The picture that you see on the screen is a picture of the Pleiades and Orion, it's a constellation that can be seen anywhere on earth. One of the few constellations that's true of. I can just see ancient men looking up at that thing. They didn't know what we know about astronomy. The hugeness of those stars, the distance that we're talking about. They knew it was up there though. They knew they couldn't reach it. They knew it was beautiful, and they knew God put it there. And the same God, the same God who stretched out the curtains of the heavens and placed the Pleiades and Orions and, and Orion and every other star and constellation and galaxy in those heavens, you and I will stand before Him. And it's a no fooling around thing. Prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. A God whose justice reigns like the heavens, but whose mercy is everlasting. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
Every last one of us. And Paul says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I would persuade you tonight. It is it's an awe-inspiring thought that we will one day stand before this God. We have an opportunity to be prepared. Israel wasn't. What about you? If in any way you are living in sin, violating God's law, you've turned away from Him and refused to turn back, prepare to meet your God. Make it right while you have the opportunity. God's mercy is everlasting. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.